ask if you will, and have not already, of course, to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. At conferences, there are advantages to being the first nightly speaker. You get the burden and the pressure off so you can enjoy the rest of the conference. Any mistakes you make will probably be covered up by the other's mistakes that they make later on. And you can encroach upon their topic, and then when they complain, you can just say, but I was there first. (laughs) The doctrine of the resurrection is so theologically intertwined with every other doctrine of redemption and atonement and the work of Christ that it becomes virtually impossible for me to speak on the resurrection uh, and apologies in advance without speaking to some degree on the exaltation and the session of Christ as well. I will do my best to limit, of course, that encroachment. Brother Fred just gave me the evil eye. (laughs) So as we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from Romans 6, I wanted to address it from the perspective of our topic, because our topic is the work of Christ, his resurrection. And as I thought about that topic, I thought... That means we're not going to be talking about the resurrection in terms of theology or its historicity, but in terms of its accomplishment in our life. What is it that the resurrection does for the believer? So I want to start by asking this question. Does Christianity change people? Does believing in Jesus Christ, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, actually change people? Now, you've all seen the billboard, the church advertisement. Lives changed here. But before we answer too quickly as to whether Christianity changes people, let's keep in mind that we live in an age where this is disputed, and not simply disputed by the unbelievers, but even by Christians. There are those who preach and teach that you may come to Christ and receive the benefit of his death, and still not be changed. Not to be overly dramatic, but I had a minister at uh, Bible college that I attended in chapel who said that it it was possible for a man to be a thief, a liar, and an adulterer, come to Christ, have heaven as his inheritance, and still be a thief and a liar and an adulterer. So when we ask the question, does Christianity change, we have to realize that a lot of the argument back comes from within that which claims to be Christian as well. And as a result, we have to deal as pastors with people who come to us, many of them bruised and discouraged and broken because they have been told something about Christianity as as far as how it's going to change their life or not, and their their entire grid, their system of thinking about Christ needs to be challenged or changed. We're also going to deal with the, I think, increasing attack on Christianity that comes from those who were raised in a religious home, but for one reason or another saw nothing in it that changed them, and so now openly attack and reject it. 
not trying to be judgmental or combative, but simply for the purpose of illustration, the uh, pop singer, Katy Perry, I kissed a girl and I liked it, was raised in a very religious upbringing. Both her parents were pastors. And at a young age, when she realized that she had temptations towards homosexual behavior, said that she would go to what she called Jesus camps to, quote, pray the gay away. And later in life, as soon as she said, as soon as she got out of the household, she realized Christianity didn't change a thing. This is the world we live in, where the attacks and the allegations that Christianity does not change come more often from the religious sector than from the secular. So if Christianity changes people, how does it change us? What is the method? Is it instantaneous? Does it happen completely in a moment and we're automatically, thoroughly, completely perfect? What is its method? And perhaps more important, or at least as important, what is its doctrinal basis? The uh, Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And it gives three answers, and the second answer is this. By Christ's power, we too are already raised to a new life. And the scriptural proof that it gives is Romans chapter 6. So we're going to look at Romans 6 this morning. We're going to ask ourselves, what does Romans, excuse me, this evening? Brandon, that's your fault. We're going to ask ourselves, what does Paul in Romans 6 tell us about how it is that we change? First, as we start, since our text has been read, let me give you some context and put Romans 6 in its flow of thought for a moment, if you will. Paul has presented to us, starting, say, about the end of Romans chapter 3, that the answer to our sin problem is salvation by grace. And in chapter 3, he specifically emphasizes grace alone. In chapter 4, he proves to us that this grace comes to us not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of faith alone. And then in chapter 5, he demonstrates that this grace is earned for us by Christ alone. So the three of the solas are answered for us in the book of Romans. Grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. This last answer, this last point of Romans 5, shows the complete effectiveness of Christ's work. Christ is our federal head, who by himself uh, undoes, if I can put it that way, the condemnation that is ours in Adam. He fully accomplishes our justification. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because he knows that if he were to stop there, it would raise the questions, in fact, the very questions that he raises in chapter 6. He anticipates his objectors, uh, and then he answers them. Given that he's writing to the church in Rome, which is uh, obviously mixed between Gentile believers and Jewish believers, Paul in Romans 6 actually addresses two potential objections. The first, I think, is geared more towards the Gentile libertine, 
who would naturally ask the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then later on, down in verse 15, he answers an objection that probably would have been asked more by the Jewish believer. Well, what about law? Doesn't law do a better job of restraining sin than grace? It's only the first one we're going to look at this morning, this evening. Excuse me. If Christ's work is seen as accomplishing grace and justification for us by itself, then it leaves the question open as to how that grace is applied to us. I had a long discussion with a high school German teacher who was a thoroughgoing Catholic over the concept of the merit of Christ and grace in salvation. And she agreed with me the whole way through until finally she said with a smile, but you realize we must merit the grace of Christ. Paul is not going to have us believe that. In Romans 5, the grace of Christ is completely earned by Christ alone. And so he has to answer the question, well, then doesn't that lead to libertinism? Doesn't that lead to the idea that we can be a Christian and not change? By the way, verse 1 is not, shall we go sin more that grace may abound more? It's, shall we continue the way we are that grace may abound? Can I come to Christ and take his grace and remain unchanged? Can I not just continue the way I'm going and let grace be exalted? Isn't that sufficient? So Paul anticipates these objections. And the way he answers them is by showing a a chain, a connection. It's a chain with only three links in it, and those three links, as you may have surmised already, are going to be my three points. The first link of this chain is what it is that we profess in our baptism. The second link of this chain is the reality of our own experience in regeneration. And then the third link of that chain is the work of Christ that purchases our regeneration, that secures it, that guarantees it. And each one of these links is a burial, excuse me, a death, a burial, and a resurrection. There's a death, burial, and resurrection in our baptism. There is a death, burial, and resurrection in our regeneration. And there is a death, burial, and resurrection in the work of Christ that secures or purchases these benefits for us. So that these three things are linked together so that Paul can finally say, you are not under the dominion of sin. Sin shall not reign in your mortal bodies. Do not let it reign. Present yourselves as servants to God. This is Paul's argument, and this is how he's going to go about proving his point with these three ideas. In the passage before us, I believe these three ideas are uh, broken out by Paul's use of the word no. So, for example, the first link on baptism, verses 3 through 5, begins with, do you not know? Then when you get down to verse 6, the second link, knowing this, our old man was crucified. Or if you have the ESV, we know that our old man was crucified with him. And then the third link, verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. 
So Paul's use of the word or the concept of know, appealing to what the Romans already know and showing them the connection between what they have professed and what they have experienced and what Christ has secured for them in his own work. So let's take these three links then. Does Christianity change us? Do we get to continue in our sin? Can we take grace and remain unchanged? Well, the first answer, the first link, no, we should not continue in sin. Because in our baptism, we gave a testimony that we identify with Christ in all of his work. That's Paul's first answer. We should not continue in sin because in our baptism, we gave a testimony that we identify with Christ in all of his work. So Paul says, verse 3, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, and I believe that's speaking of baptism, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul says that when the Christian is baptized, they are baptized into Christ. Don't you know that you are baptized into Christ Jesus, he says in verse 3. To be baptized into, and then fill in the blank, is the idea of publicly identifying with or expressing your unity or your union with. So to be baptized into Christ is to publicly express your union, your unity, your identity with Christ. You will find the same construction in Matthew 28, uh, 18, the Great Commission, baptizing them, and I'll be overly literal here, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.13, Paul asked, were you baptized into the name of Paul? In 1 Corinthians 10, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, and Paul says they were baptized into Moses. That is, that they now identified with, or they were united to Moses as their leader, as opposed to identifying as slaves with Pharaoh as their king. So Paul says when you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ. You identified with Christ. But the very logical conclusion is this. If you were baptized or identified with Christ as a whole, then of necessity you identify with the individual parts of his work as well. You can't identify with all of Christ and then say, except for, you know, see the footnote below. So that in verse 3, he says that in our baptism, we were baptized into his death. We identified with his death in our baptism. And then of necessity, verse 4, if we were baptized into his death, then we were baptized also, buried with him through baptism. And then in verse 5, if we've been united in the likeness of his death, then certainly we will be in the likeness of his resurrection so that our baptism is a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Paul rules out the possibility here of identifying with only one part of Christ, but not the others. 
He says, in your baptism, you were proclaiming your unity with Christ, and that means all of Christ. His cross, his tomb, as well as his resurrection. The first link in the chain, then, is baptism. It's a profession, a confession, if you will, identifying us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, obviously, I interpret Romans 6 as a Baptist. It's a little bit off topic, but I can see no way that you can properly understand Romans 6 and not see immersion. Now, R.L. Dabney, in his systematic theology, argues that Romans 6, when it uses the word baptism, is only talking about regeneration, and it's using it as a metaphor, to which I would say, yes, there is regeneration all through the first part of Romans 6, but why use a metaphor of baptism? That's a rather odd metaphor to use to begin with. Baptism is a sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which I now profess that I believe, which I now confess is mine. So it's not only just a ritual or a rite um, imitating the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's a personal confession that this is my belief. I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I not only believe these things, I identify with them. They define me. They explain the very core of my life and the goal of my existence. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is my personal confession. That's the first link of the chain. But that statement by itself is hollow unless there has also been a valid experience behind it. It's rather empty to say, I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it really is meaningless. I confess these things to be true, maybe, but they really haven't changed me in any way. And so starting in verse 6, Paul gives us the second link. Again, starting with that word know. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. This second link is our own spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. Not the ritual of baptism, but the reality of our regeneration. As believers, we should not and cannot continue unchanged because we have been changed. We have experienced our own death, our own burial, and our own resurrection. And this functions, if you will, as the middle link between our baptism and Christ's work. If we omit this link, then our baptism becomes merely symbolic. We're just sort of reenacting what Christ did. Why are you reenacting it? Baptism is not religious mimicry. 
It is that by which we make a profession of faith, not only of what we believe, but of what has happened to us. Baptism, in this sense, does not directly connect us to Christ's work. And understand how I mean that. It does not directly connect us to Christ's work without first going through the effects of Christ's work in our own life. In other words, the ritual of baptism, if I can use that word, the ordinance, the sacrament of baptism, which is a profession in a symbolic death, burial, and resurrection, points immediately to our own death, burial, and resurrection first before pointing to Christ's work that makes that uh, regeneration possible. So that verse 5 is the end of the first link. We've been united in the likeness of his death. We will be united in the likeness of his resurrection. And then we get that knowing this, so that our baptism can be seen as a death, burial, and resurrection because we know something. That's Paul's point. Our baptism is our profession or our confession of being united to Christ because we know something. And what we know is that we have experienced this very thing ourselves. Verse 6, what is it that we know? Our old self was crucified with Christ. Here Paul tells us that the moment of our regeneration, there is a fundamental change in us. The word order emphasis of this verse puts the, the, the emphasis on the word old. The old man. The person that we used to be. The one who we were by birth no longer exists. The person that came into existence as a son of Adam, condemned by Adam's sin and inheriting a sinful nature, and doing so loving it, not resisting it. We were born slaves of sin, and we were born voluntary slaves of sin, raising our hands for bondage and volunteering. Paul says that old man is no longer in existence. We are still the same person. But we now think differently about sin. Something has happened. We don't love sin the way we used to. And we make decisions that that wrestle against sin and lead us away from it. This change of the old man being crucified and being raised to a new man is not perfect. It is not final, but it is real. Our old man was crucified, he says, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That phrase, body of sin, is much misused. When a person is crucified, it is normally the body that experiences the crucifixion, the physical body. Paul uses the phrase body of sin here, I believe, as a metaphor to talk about our our natural unregenerate state, our sin nature, if you will. It's not the body of physical flesh that's crucified here. It's our old man who's crucified that the or excuse me, it's not our physical body that's done away with. It's the body of sin. It's sin itself. The sum it's not the sum total of our sin nature, so to speak. 
but rather in contrast to a physical body, it means as a metaphor that our sin nature, our unregenerate status, if you will, is done away with. So that we are no longer slaves of sin. Our sinful nature is no longer under the, the, the domination of sin. Or to put it this way, because we have died and risen again, sin is dethroned. And Christ is Lord. So that Paul can say in verse 7 that he who has died has been freed from sin. We are still sinners. Sin didn't die. It is still very active. It is quite alive. And we still sin. But in Paul's analogy, it is we who died. We were the ones who were put to death. It is our old man crucified and buried. If a slave is living, he's a slave. If he dies, he is free from his master. So we who were born slaves of sin have died in Christ. Our old man being crucified with Christ and being raised to a new life so that we are freed from the dominion of sin. It is no longer our master. There is now a radical, and I mean that in terms of root, there is a root change that has taken place in the believer. So the first two links of Paul's argument. When you were baptized, what were you saying? You were confessing that you have experienced a death, burial, and resurrection. You confess that by means of a pictorial, a sacramental death, burial, and resurrection. Because uh, you, you go through that sacrament, that ordinance, because you yourself have been through the experience where your old man has died and you have been raised a new man. So the third link then is this. How is all of this accomplished in us? And the answer is because Christ himself died and was buried and rose again. Look at verses 9 and 10, if you will. Again, notice the knowing that starts verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Paul's point here is that we should not continue in sin because Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has fully accomplished everything for our own regeneration, our own death, burial, and resurrection. He has secured it. His work guarantees it. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection guarantees that his people will have their own death, burial, and resurrection in the death of a new man and being raised to a new life. In Romans 5, Paul shows us that Christ, our federal head, accomplishes for us all that's necessary for our justification. But in Romans 6, he shows us that Christ, as our head, accomplishes in us the sovereign work of regeneration. We are regenerated because Christ rose from the dead. We are new creatures in Christ because he rose from the dead. 
being raised from the dead, he is not only secured, fully accomplishing our salvation, our redemption, but he has also been given authority to speak. And he speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. So in verses 9 through 10, Paul isn't just saying that Christ died and arose. He isn't just saying that Christ died and arose once for all. He is saying that Christ died and arose once for all because he completely finished the work necessary to guarantee our own regeneration. Christ being raised, he says, death no longer has dominion over him. This no longer is an unusual phrase. He's not just saying that Christ died and he will never die again. Rather, I think what Paul is doing here is a a figure of speech, an understatement, if you will. Um, In Galatians, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he uses a negative, against such there is no law. Well, he doesn't mean that there's no law forbidding the fruit of the Spirit. His real point is, as an understatement, that the fruit of the Spirit completely fulfills the law. So here, Christ, he says, death no longer has dominion over him. He's not just saying Christ will never die again. He's saying Christ is the complete victor over death. Death is the the punishment, the sentence which God's justice demands. And Christ has fully satisfied the demands of God's justice. He is victorious over death. It's not just that death doesn't get a second crack at him, if I can put it that way. It's that Christ is the victor. His resurrection is the proof that he has accomplished the full satisfaction of God's demands. And that he has done it for us. So that in verse 10, we read that he died to sin once for all. To say that Christ died to sin is not saying that he was infected with it or affected by it as we are. Rather, it's saying that he lived his life under the burden of being our redeemer. He was our sin bearer. And he once for all accomplished the satisfaction of that burden. Hebrews 9.28 puts it this way. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who wait for him, he will appear a second time without sin or apart from sin for salvation. Here, apart from sin in Romans means, I think, a similar thing to what Paul is getting at when he says that he died to sin. His first coming was for the purpose of bearing sin, bearing our burden. But his second coming will be for a completely different purpose. So Christ died to sin once for all. Again, this is Paul's way of saying that he fully satisfied the penalty that justice demands. Charles Hodge puts it this way. The believer dies to sin in one sense, Christ dies to sin in another. In both cases, death, the idea of separation, is expressed. But in the case of the believer, it is separation from personal indwelling sin. In the case of Christ, 
It is death or separation from the burden of his people's sin, which he bore upon the cross. Death has no more dominion over Christ, for he died to sin. By one sacrifice of himself, he freed forever, uh, excuse me, freed himself forever from the burden of sin, which he had voluntarily assumed. The law is perfectly satisfied, and it can make no further demands on him or inflict no further penalty. Christ's death was the destruction of sin for its expiation, and it was a deliverance from it. He came the first time as our sin-bearer with sin. He will come again without sin unto salvation. So this phrase then, that Christ no longer is under the dominion of sin, is an understatement. He is victorious over sin and death. This idea that he has died to sin once for all is that as our sin-bearer once for all, he has perfectly accomplished our atonement, our our salvation. So that Christ's death is not repeatable, not because it's just simply done already. It's not repeatable because it's perfectly finished. Christ once for all offered up himself. Peter says Christ once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And by the way, Peter's statement, that he might bring us to God, is not a possibility. It's a guarantee. He died once for all, so that he guarantees that we will be brought to God. So this last link of the chain is this, that the one who died and rose again exercises the authority of his accomplished work to effect in us our own death, burial, and resurrection. And in the end, so that we then make confession of that event, that experience in our baptism. Let me summarize it this way, and then I'll give you somebody who can summarize it a whole lot better than I can, which is John Calvin. My summary, in our baptism, we give or go through the sign, if you will, of a death, burial, and resurrection because we are declaring that we have died, been buried, and raised a new men in Christ. And we are also declaring that our dying, burial, and resurrection is fully accomplished and guaranteed by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Three links of the chain, each of them a death, burial, and resurrection. So Calvin puts it this way. Paul takes up this principle that we are then really united to the body of Christ when his death brings forth in us its fruit. Indeed, he teaches us that this fellowship with Christ as to death is what is mainly regarded in baptism. It is not a washing alone that is set forth, but it's also the putting to death, the dying of the old man. And so it is hence evident that when we become partakers of the grace of Christ in regeneration, immediately it is the efficacy of Christ's death that appears. Does Christianity change? Change people? 
Pastors, you are going to hear people say, yeah, I tried that Christianity stuff and it didn't work for me. Some preacher told me that if I just came to Christ or tried Christ or whatever the statement is, that my problems would be solved. My depression would go away. I would never have a problem with alcoholism again. My sin, my temptation, my worry, my lust, my anger would all be solved and I would have a good, happy life. I tried it and it didn't work for me. Christianity doesn't change people. As pastors, we're going to face many situations like that. For those who are not believers, we have to distinguish carefully the distinction, or, or excuse me, the, make the distinction between those who are just simply convicted by their conscience that they've done something wrong, or those who are just simply unhappy with their life and want something better, versus those who have had a fundamental change of heart because the old man is dead and a new man has been raised. We have to tell them that Christianity isn't about them finding something that will stop the feelings of guilt so they can feel better about themselves. We have to tell them that Christianity is about becoming somebody different than who they are. They must be born again. We will also, as pastors, deal with people in our church genuine believers who are discouraged because sin just hangs on. And we have to remind them that Romans 5 comes before Romans 6. That before Paul ever said, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, he said, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Let's teach our people to treasure grace. There's an event in the life of the disciples where Christ has sent them out with the power to cast out demons and to heal, and they come back all excited. Even the evil spirits are subject to us in your name. And Christ reminds them, what? Don't be excited about this. That's, this is Steve Garrett's paraphrase. Rather, be excited that your names are written in the book of life. It's very easy to become excited with the growth of the Christian life and to forget the basis is in the complete, perfect justification that Christ earned for us on our behalf. Teach your people to treasure grace. When they stumble and fall and they are discouraged because of their sins, take them to Romans 5 before you take them to Romans 6. Teach them to love being forgiven. Teach them to treasure the complete authoritative work of Christ. Teach them to treasure grace. Pastors, I would also say to us that our hope as preachers of the word stems from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you preach the word to unsaved people, it is the resurrected Christ who has the authority to command their spiritual death and resurrection. It is he who can speak and the dead will come to life. It is the one who died himself and was raised from the dead 
who has the power and authority to command the same in people who hear the preaching of the Word of God. And when you preach the Word of God to save people, it is the resurrected Christ who can take that Word and work in them the power of His resurrection, forming in them His own image by the Spirit and Word. Our risen Savior, raised to a new life Himself, will continually work out a new life in us to conform us to His own image. Last, don't let sin reign. Before the work of salvation, sin reigned in our lives because it was dominant. It was our master. Not that we complained much, but it had dominion. And Paul shows us through the three links of this chain that it no longer has dominion. Christ defeated it through his death, burial, and resurrection. He implements it by spirit and word in us in our death, burial, and resurrection. And we publicly confessed it in our water, death, burial, and resurrection. Sin shall not reign. It cannot reign now out of dominion, but it can reign out of permission. Don't let it rain. Don't give it that position. Husbands, you let sin reign and it will destroy your marriage. Your children will rise up and they will see the hypocrisy in your profession versus your behavior. And do not be surprised when they reject Christianity. It will destroy your life. And ministers, it will discourage your people and destroy your church. Do not let sin reign. Find help. Do whatever it takes. But whatever you do, do not let sin reign. We are able to not sin. Sin does not have dominion over us. It is dethroned. Your risen Lord has conquered, and He has given to you a new resurrected life. We can resist the evil one. And we can, as new men, bring forth true righteousness and true holiness with which God is pleased in Christ. All of this is possible for us. May God be pleased to work out in us the profession of our faith made in our baptism based on the reality of our regeneration because Christ our Lord is risen from the dead. Let's go to him in prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you what you already know, that we too readily give in to sin and grant it its permission to rule over us. Forgive us, Father. Keep us from presumptuous sins. Keep us from hidden sins. Work in us the new life that we may work out our salvation. Father, we thank you 
for the complete victory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our head, died, buried, and risen for us. We thank you for the guarantee of new life that he has earned for his people. And we thank you for the mercies and patience of your spirit that has applied that to us. Grant to us, Father, a desire to be new men, as we have been taught, to put on Christ, to live right lives of holiness and righteousness. And when we do, may all the praise and honor and glory be to our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.